The viewpoints expressed on Night Fright are not necessarily those of the host, the staff, the sponsors, or the affiliate stations. Tonight's program may contain graphic themes or images. Viewer discretion is advised. Showtime! Welcome to the show, everybody. I'm your host, Branch Holland. Welcome, one and all, to Night Fright. Get the coffee going and get that tea going. Get a beverage of your choice going. Kick back in your most comfy chair. Get on the couch. Pull the comforter way up. Now's your time to relax. We've got a great show for you tonight on the President Kennedy assassination and conspiracy. You know, folks, Polls have repeatedly shown that most Americans refuse to accept the official story of the Kennedy assassination. Now, the Warren Commission, that commission that was set up to investigate the assassination, would like us to believe that the president was killed by a lone nut assassin by the name of Lee Harvey Oswald. That's an individual they claim had radical tendencies and an abnormal mind. However, our guest tonight, Don Gibson, renowned JFK researcher, suggests that the conspiracy may have been executed by a network of wealthy private interests whose goals were at odds with almost everything President Kennedy was doing. Tonight, author, researcher Don Gibson joins us to tell us about his research and how he reached that very conclusion. Two books are guest has written, The Kennedy Assassination Cover-Up, Battling Wall Street, The Kennedy Presidency. As always, folks, www.nightfrightshow.com. Click on tonight's guest book covers, and that'll take you right to a spot where you can order them from the comfort of your own home. Now, Don Gibson, folks, was born and raised in the Philadelphia area and served as a a communications analyst in the United States Air Force in the 1960s. He is author of five books, the most recent being Wealth, Power, and the Crisis of Laissez-Faire Capitalism. I'd like to welcome Don to the, first, to the show for the very first time. How you doing, Don? Thank you very much, Brent, for having me. You're very welcome, my friend. Thank you for these two great books and your work in bringing the truth forward. Don, just out of curiosity, what got you started down this diving into this rabbit hole we know as the JFK assassination? Uh, During the 1970s, I was a graduate student in sociology at the University of Delaware, and I became interested in in what the consequences might be 
uh, if American corporations began shipping their production outside of the country. And uh, I became particularly concerned about what the political consequences might be. But in any event, I started studying uh, what was going on with the American economy. And uh, all through the 70s, I continued to do that, and I finished my dissertation, but I, I kept looking into the economy, and slowly I started moving backwards. Uh, I hadn't really paid much attention to the 50s and 60s, and I started to, and as soon as I got into the 60s, I discovered that that was one of the best economic decades in American history, and uh, I, and so I wondered, you know, why? <laughs> and uh, so I started looking for what had happened to make that such a good decade, and I very quickly got to the presidency of John Kennedy, and uh, it, it would definitely appear uh, that his policies were at least partly responsible for that great prosperity we enjoyed at that time. Uh, in the process of looking into that, I discovered that there was a major reaction against him, which came out of Wall Street primarily. And um, go ahead. Well, I was going to ask you, what were some of those policies that you were looking at that were so revolutionary and threatened the status quo? Um, well, I think the, what threatened the status quo is that the thrust of Kennedy's policy was contrary to where they were about to go and, and uh, very soon after he, he was dead. And um, partly this would have to do with the so-called globalization and the free trade, because Kennedy was uh, clearly someone who believed in some form of cooperative nationalism, and that is he believed that a country's governments had an important role to play in economic processes and affairs, and uh, he felt that way about his own country, and he also extended that right to other countries as well. So, uh, me, so he believed in an activist government which shapes the economy and, and guards against the abuses of, of private wealth and, and private power. Uh, meanwhile, uh, the upper class itself was starting to think more and more and more of free trade. And, and when we say free trade, I don't mean just open exchange of goods. What they meant was tearing down the role of government in economic affairs. And they were going to do this around the world as much as they could. Um, uh, but even in the United States, where an anti-government movement began uh, during the 1970s, to some extent coming out of the think tanks, like the American Enterprise Institute and the Heritage Foundation and those other uh, like-minded groups, um, so uh, Kennedy was uh, at odds with their whole game plan in terms of economic policy. I was going to ask you, were his policies reversed by Johnson, or did that happen more with Nixon? Uh, probably we wait until Ford uh, for a really stark shift, because uh, Nixon, in spite of the fact that he was a Republican, was not really one of these anti-government, ultra-free enterprise uh, Republicans. And that was probably because he grew up and lived with the New Deal. Uh, during World War II, he served in the military. 
FDR was his commander-in-chief. Uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower was a fairly practical and pragmatic uh, Republican who built the interstate highway system. And so Nixon's whole background, uh, even though he had some bad tendencies, Nixon's background in terms of economics was relatively moderate. So we really get to Ford where that big shift starts because Ford was an officer of the American Enterprise Institute and was a rabid promoter of anti-government viewpoints. And, and so I think the big shift takes place then. But, but there was also some shift as soon as Kennedy was, was killed because neither Johnson nor Nixon uh, promoted or pushed these policies the way Kennedy did. Was Kennedy seen as a revolutionary socialist, even more so than, say, FDR was with uh, his New Deal? Well, at the time I did my book, I, my knowledge of FDR was okay, but not good enough, and I've since learned a lot more. Um, they certainly hated Roosevelt. Wall Street did. Hmm. Now, you know, there were a few exceptions, of course, uh, like the Lehman Brothers and some other interests, but most of the Wall Street people led by J.P. Morgan's group uh, disliked uh, Roosevelt intensely, and they called him everything in the book, socialist, fascist, um, which is something that Joe Kennedy himself uh, wrote a book about and reacted against their, uh, their reckless attacks on Roosevelt. Um, yeah, with Kennedy, the same thing happened. They started labeling him a socialist and a communist, and um, that sort of thing, and that that unfolded in the just in the period he was president. It started right away at the Wall Street Journal. I don't think he was in office six weeks before they started attacking him. Time Magazine and Henry Luce. It took about a year or so before they really turned on Kennedy. Is that where it started? Did it start in the editorials and the press, or was it more covert? and it was already going on before it became open uh, season on Kennedy, if you will. It is in the open, obviously, in the mass uh, press. Right. I, don't, I don't have evidence on how that unfolded, but all of that press was, was connected to the, uh, Wall Street firms and money, to the Council on Foreign Relations, uh, and, it was, and we're talking here about high-level people in the, in, in the Council on Foreign Relations, not just members, because a lot of members weren't particularly important. Um, so that suggests, that does suggest probably a coordinated effort on their part. I'd be sort of shocked if they didn't talk about it. Was Kennedy pro-union? Is that what threatened the corporations as well, especially manufacturing? Well, uh, they were certainly, if they weren't consciously ready, they were soon to be consciously ready to destroy the labor movement. And there is no doubt that Kennedy, had he lived, uh, would have offered his defense of the labor unions. Uh, um, so uh, how much of a factor that would have been, I'm not sure. I think the bigger thing was just the question of who's going to shape the economy a popularly elected president or private wealth. And private wealth was determined to shape the direction of the economy. When we, is there a person in specific that was spearheading this movement against Kennedy, working the machinations below the surface? 
well, somebody who comes up on the surface, but pro also, I'm sure, was doing plenty else, was David Rockefeller. How so? Can you give us some examples? Well, he openly attacked Kennedy uh, for his foreign aid policies and um, for his failure to support free enterprise and free markets globally. And, um, uh, yeah, I guess those were that was the primary focus of David's attacks. Was Kennedy trying to protect jobs at home? I mean, we've seen the disaster. We've shipped so many manufacturing jobs offshore at this point. There's nobody left to buy the cheap products that are being that are being returned to the country that are being manufactured offshore. We've put a, a complete workforce out of uh, out of work. Is this what Kennedy was trying to prevent? Uh, how clearly he could see that, I'm not sure. But he did recommend tax changes and tax policies which would encourage American production to stay in the United States especially if it was going to leave to go to places like Canada and Europe. Um, so uh, he already recognized, and the AFL-CIO, you know, 10 years later, laid out a fairly thorough analysis of a lot of this. And I think that was 72 or so. Um, but so Kennedy could see that problem, and he was already addressing the problem. Whether he ever perceived that we get to where we are today, that is, uh, having a post-industrial, uh, de-industrialized e economy. And as I'm sure you know, the, the, the last decade, from 2000 to 2010, was catastrophic for American workers. I mean, we lost over 35% over of our manufacturing in that decade. Yeah, I don't know if we'll ever recover. And the same thing has happened in Canada to a, a lesser extent, but the same thing has happened here as well. Yeah. Um, folks, if you're just joining us, we're speaking with Don Gibson. Don Gibson, of course, a, a famous JFK researcher. He's got a couple of books we're talking about tonight, The Kennedy Assassination Cover-Up, Battling Wall Street, The Kennedy Presidency, www.nightfrightshow.com. Just click on tonight's guest book covers. Take it right to a spot where you can get the books from the comfort of your own home. Don, I want to go back a little bit to the um, the antagonism that JFK was uh, presenting to the status quo. Uh, one of the chapters in the book is on Alan Dulles. Now, I just happen to live in a place called Kingston, Ontario, and we're a stone's throw from where Alan, the Dulles brothers were born, which is a place called Watertown. And uh, many people listening in Kingston right now will be surprised to learn that the head of the CIA in the 50s and the 60s was born less than seven I, minutes. As the I don't believe was. I'd seen that. <laughs> <laughs> Can we talk a little bit about the Dulles brothers and how they worked their way into the whole scenario and narrative? <clears throat> um, yeah, let me, let me frame it this way. Uh, sure. We had a foreign policy that was fairly uh, conservative, and we didn't get involved in much all the way into the 1890s, probably. And uh, only with the, the growing investments and interests of the American upper class did we start to also involve our military all over Central and Latin America, not Latin America, but Central America, and um, you know, a couple dozen times between 1898 
and the time that Roosevelt came in, we invaded other countries. And virtually all of that, as the famous uh, General Smedley Butler uh, pointed out at the time, uh, virtually all of that was on behalf of investments by Wall Street. So uh, when Roosevelt came into office, he declared the good neighbor policy, which I think is underestimated by a lot of writers, even people like Arthur Schlesinger. Uh, what the good neighbor policy said to the rest of the hemisphere was, we're not going to do that anymore. And Roosevelt, uh, although, you know, you can criticize him for lending aid to a couple of unsavory uh, leaders, but there was no more use of American gunboat diplomacy under Roosevelt. And that good neighbor policy was real. And what Kennedy did, really, with the Alliance for Progress, was to sort of deepen it and enrich it with a bigger economic message. Um, so uh, Kennedy was in the tradition of Roosevelt's a good neighbor policy, but it was a much more thoroughly development-oriented strategy that Kennedy took. Uh, I think we've probably gotten a little off track. <laughs> Can you get us back? No, that's fine. I was also going to say, you know, Alan Dulles um, was oh. in check. <laughs> yeah, that's that's where we were headed. But uh, you know, we could tie Alan Dulles in with um, with Rockefeller because you had said that Rockefeller was slamming JFK's foreign policy. But we know JFK believed a lot in reaching out to um, developing countries, if you will, especially with the peace uh, the peace initiative. Um, I'm trying to think of the the thing that uh, Shriver started, Sergeant Shriver started, uh, Peace Corps. Forgive me, folks. My mind went blank there for a second. So he was more interested in building alliances and building a single world, I think, uh, than just keeping the walls up. I think, do you think perhaps that part of that came from his distrust of the CIA and Alan Dulles, especially after the Bay of Pigs when Alan Dulles lied to him? Um, I... I I don't think he trusted him that much from the get-go, okay. but I think he made a pragmatic decision to bring a lot of them into the government because he would be able to read their reaction to everything he was doing. And then also he, he might get a chance to pressure them into you know, supporting them. Uh, but I, don't, I think it was understood from the beginning that they didn't share a common view of foreign policy. Uh, Dulles, uh, and I think at both, it's hard to say which one was more important, probably over the long term, Alan, because he was the family activist in terms of the Council on Foreign Relations. He sat on the board of directors for decades, one of the longest sitting members of the board of the CFR, and um, very much in line with Henry Stimson and Elihu Root who are the earlier upper-class foreign policy wizards. And um, people like McGeorge Bundy really are also in thoroughly in that tradition. And so Vietnam was given to us by the same crowd of people who were running those uh, invasions between 1898 and 1933, which Roosevelt stopped, right? So in a sense, you can frame it out time-wise that from Roosevelt to Kennedy from 33 to 63, we really had a substantially different foreign policy, even even though we did have Iran and Guatemala. 
and that was Dulles, of course, to some extent, the, both Dulleses. Um, but we had at least some framework there where we didn't go and invade countries. That really changed right after Kennedy with both the Dominican Republic and Vietnam, because those are really, as far as I understand it, those are the first two significant interventions since Roosevelt came into office, right? So where we are in 65 is back to the pre-good neighbor days. <laughs> yeah. The old boys have come back. Can you tell the folks yeah. who are unaware what the Council on Foreign Relations is, just to give a, a brief synopsis and an overview? Uh, there was an active effort to join the American upper class with the British upper class, and this was going on like, you know, 1910, 15, 20. And um, they, in fact, briefly, the American upper class was going to become one of the Royal Institutes, <laughs> if you can imagine that. And then the, somebody in the CFR group said, no, nah, that's not going to look good. So they create... They, they, they joined with a already existing group uh, called the Council on Foreign Relations, which it had been around for a couple of years. And so it was formed in its today's form in 1921. And ever since that time, it's been thoroughly dominated by America's wealthy families and then also institutions, banks, oil companies. Um, you know where where that lead where the leadership from the upper class is today. I'm not, not so sure because they seem to be they seem to be handing policy over to people like Dick Cheney. <laughs> I mean, which is hardly an improvement, right? I mean, <laughs> I mean, he may make us miss Dean Acheson at some point, <laughs> 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 which is hard to do. That's Very funny. Hard. That's funny. <laughs> So they basically have their own interests in mind rather than the global interest, if you will, especially the country. Yeah. I think that's one of the most important lessons for all Americans to grasp is that the, the involvements of our private wealth in this country all over the world and their close alliance, especially with the British upper class, uh, leads them to continuously do things that are not in our country's interest. Okay, I want to I want to get into the Kennedy assassination now. I just want to tell people who we're speaking with first, uh, folks. We're speaking with Don uh, Gibson. He's a wonderful, wonderful guy. He's uh, got two great books out. As soon as I scroll up to find him, the Kennedy assassination cover up, battling Wall Street is the other one. The Kennedy presidency, as always, www.nightfrightshow.com. Click on tonight's guest book covers and order the books. There's a lot of great information. We're covering a lot of it tonight, folks, but obviously there's going to be far more detail and, um, you know, more to the story. The, the, the guts of the story are going to be in the book, so I'd recommend you getting both books. I think they'd look good on your shelf, too, especially if you're into the JFK assassination. And more importantly, especially if you're not, because this will explain in very clear, clear picture and a roadmap of why Kennedy was killed. And that's the important question. Why was Kennedy removed? I can guarantee you folks, after speaking with Ted Sorensen, it was not the Harvey Oswald, one little nut assassin that just killed JFK. There was indeed a conspiracy. 
Did he believe that from the beginning, Brent? I don't believe so. I think he came to that conclusion. Uh, He may have. He may have. I know he was very upset over Bobby's assassination. He was upstairs in the hotel room when Bobby was assassinated. And he had warned Bobby, and Teddy Kennedy had warned Bobby not to run. They were terrified he was going to be killed. And indeed, you know, their worst nightmares came to fruition. Well, Robert Kennedy was going to bring more of JFK. Oh, absolutely, without question. Uh, yeah. You know, I had asked Ted that very question. Was Bobby's policy, were Bobby's policies very similar to JFK's? He said, not in the beginning, but once he, he decided to run, they were, I won't say identical, because it was different times. It was five, four, five years later. But he, sure. yeah, he said that, you know, obviously civil rights was still an issue. Vietnam, that was the big one, right? I mean, that was the huge one that was... He devoted over half of his book to seek a newer world. Um, he devoted over half of that book to the Alliance for Progress in Vietnam. Yeah. And, and, and the book is 60-some pages of backing JFK's Alliance for Progress. So that's pretty apparent, you know, that's pretty obvious. <laughs> yeah, no question at all on that one. Which was changed, you know, and David Rockefeller bragged in openly in 65 or 66 that Kennedy's policies had been altered after he was killed. Openly said that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, without question, without question. And um, I'm just glad Johnson brought the Civil Rights Bill through. That was, you know, he championed that. Yeah. Was for that. Okay. Cave in on Vietnam. I mean, just, he, yeah. he, he gave in to that quickly. Yeah, very much so. He gave in to the Joint Chiefs right away. And then and he couldn't face the fact that it was his policy, because so he'd always referred to it as JFK's he wanted to. policy. Yeah, shift responsibility for it away. November 22nd, 1963. Where were you, my friend? I was uh, pre-registering for uh, my second semester in college, and I was standing in line, and I heard uh, two professors at a table talking to each other, and one said, is the president going to make it? And the other one said, it didn't sound like it. And I thought they were talking about the president of the college. So without asking, I, I forget why I didn't, but maybe I was way back in the line or something. But I didn't, I didn't get to ask them, the, you know, who they were talking about. So I got in my car to drive home. I was a commuter student, and when I turned the radio on, there it was. That's right here. It is. What was more tra- tragic for you, just for the students uh, that are listening today, 9/11 or the Kennedy assassination? Oh, geez, I, I think they're so different. Um, Good answer. That's a good answer. What led you to believe there was a conspiracy or something was amiss in the Kennedy assassination? Um, I had always had some sense of that, and I guess that's just from whatever, my background, upbringing. People I knew were very interested in politics, and right away they suspected stuff. And I can remember sitting around dining room table with older people who were saying that that's so I got some of that early on, and then I, I read Mark Lane's book as soon as it came out, Rush to Judgment, and a couple of others. 
during the 60s, late 60s. And then I kind of let it go. You know, I just, I just didn't think there would be any way of determining who, what group or force was responsible. And so I just sort of chalked it off to what the upper class probably does to get rid of people and went on with my life. But when I found out how much conflict there was between Kennedy and Wall Street, that really fired my interest up again. And then I met James D. Eugenio. Oh, sure. Jim's a good friend, and so is Mark, by the way. Yeah. I met Jim through the publication of my book with Sheridan Square, which he had a connection to. And then I, so I, because of my connection to Jim, I decided, oh, and then the big thing that happened in, in, in this time period is the release of telephone transcripts. And uh, by this time, I had a good sense of whose Kennedy's enemies were. And when I went and got those transcripts from the federal government, lo and behold, there are his enemies creating the Warren Commission. Uh-huh. And that really, so I was off and running at that point. And I gave a talk in Washington at the Coalition on Political Assassinations. And sitting next to me, someone I had never met before, was Fletcher Prouty. So I became became friends with Prouty. And I was already friends with Harold Weisberg. And then so I became involved with that part of the assassination community. Mostly Eugenio Weisberg, and Prouty, but others at, at times. It's, uh, by the way, folks, I just want to let you know there's a bunch of shows there with Mark Lane in the archives, www.nightfrightshow.com. All the shows are free, folks, so please download them all and enjoy them all. And there's a bunch of shows with Jim as well. Uh, both are personal friends of mine, and uh, Mark actually wrote the foreword to my book, so I'm very grateful for him for that. The JFK Assassination, the definitive book by Brent Holland. From inside the Oval Office to Davy Plaza, first-person witness accounts. Order yours right now, nightfrightshow.com. Let's go back to the machinations, the people that were at work. Is it like the movie? Was it like something, what is it Donald Sutherland says, it was in the wind? Is that how you feel it transpired? Um, Well, I don't think any large number of people knew when it was going to happen. And I don't think any large number of people knew uh, who ordered it or were involved directly. I imagine this was a very executive-type decision, and it's hard to believe it would involve more than 6, 10, 15 people. I don't even know if McCloy and Dulles knew, but I'm sure they knew they should have, and they they probably did know if they didn't know. <laughs> um, but I, but um, all of these guys, right, if they were asked by the right people to do things, they would do them with no questions asked. So you don't have to have some grand conspiracy here. You only need a handful of people who have real clout, right? The money, the movers and shakers in, in Washington and Wall Street. Yeah, and, 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 the and right, sure. And you look at Dulles and McCloy and Rostow and Dean Acheson, and when you look at that group of people, and, and I did this, they're so clearly the movers, like they're, you know, they're organizers, they're doers within the upper class. They take care of getting stuff done. 
and um, it, it, it's clear that they're not act, probably not acting just by themselves. I don't think. You know? Do you think there was a straw that broke the proverbial camel's back that said, "Okay, this is the last thing we're going to let Kennedy do. We've got to do something about this." We're just guessing in this area, but if I had to guess, I guess it was just cumulative. And the more and more areas that became a, a, were, a, a, you know, um, angering the upper class, the more areas you had, the greater the consensus was uh, that you had to get rid of them somehow. Because they were looking at another right now, another five years. Because it's pretty obvious that his approval ratings, I don't think, ever went below 60. Well, and, especially after the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis. Yeah. And uh, on average, I believe, close to 70. He, nobody had higher average approval ratings than this president. No, the man so, loved universally, without question. Yeah, and Goldwater was not the kind of guy who's not going to knock off Kennedy, for God's sake. No. So he, they had another five years of him and then as the saying goes of course they'd have to worry about someone else in, in the family or if not in the family in the same faction of the Democratic Party which would be just as bad didn't have to be a family member so I think they were looking at a long-term problem and they just that that's what led to the radical decision the killing radical in the sense that anytime you kill a president you probably are taking certain risks in terms of what what's the fallout going to be can we dive into Dealey Plaza how would the folks in Wall Street be able to create a scenario in Dealey Plaza where you've got multiple shooter locations and multiple shooters then you've got to set up the patsy but let's start off with the shooters first then we'll figure out how they set up Lee Harvey Oswald can you speculate for us on how that may have taken place that's it's a tough one, I know. Well, it's it's interesting to think about the the question of whether or not they would allow more than one shooter in in a different position, because that would automatically mean conspiracy of some kind. Uh, and but it does appear that they did do that, that they used more than one shooter. Uh, maybe. This was a case of, of um, you know, this was probably farmed out to professionals. And Fletcher Prouty used to say to me that there are a number of organizations in the world which operate outside, really, of any particular country and that they're professional assassins and that he always figured that, that, was, that they flew in a team and then flew it out again right after the shooting and and then some of the American, like a, E. Howard Hunt and some of these other people may have been on the ground sort of managing the side, you know, the, the peripheral aspects of it. But probably the real shooting was done by, by these kinds of professional contract killers. Yeah, I would think, yeah. Like Mark Lee. Sure. I mean, you've got to... I was going to say, in Mark Lane's executive action, the movie, it shows yeah. that there's uh, teams that have been hired to execute the the president. So maybe something along those lines. It remains a mystery, but I am firmly convinced that there was multiple shooters. I had Sherry Feaster 
on the show. She's a crime scene investigator uh, using 21st century um, forensics. She looked at the Sapruder film and found a frontal shot, but not from the grassy knoll, she says, 110% convinced that the fatal shot came from the opposite side of the grassy knoll. In other words, the south side of the knoll, not the north side where we presume that she's not negating that there wasn't a shooter there. She just said the fatal shot came from the south side of the knoll. And that would tie in with triangulation as well. There, there isn't really a, there's, in terms of the investigation by the Warren Commission, there's not a single thing they did there that's uh, clear or, or obvious. And everything was done to override doubts and questions and evidence and con- conflicting accounts. And uh, the whole thing smacks of, con- you know, just a construction. I mean, part of the evidence for a conspiracy is their own behavior. Because there's very few other explanations for why they behave this way. If they had any legitimate interest in why their president or how their president was killed, they would not have behaved the way they did. So they didn't have any legitimate interest in how their president was killed. Just out of curiosity, any idea how the stock market reacted the next day after the assassination? I th- I didn't do much, as I recall. Okay. We'll just, take... just a small drop, I think. Okay. No, I was just curious. I thought it would have went through the floor. That's why. Do you think Kennedy's outreach to Khrushchev, um, especially the peace speech that was made in June, um, do you think that had a lot to do with the assassination as well? Here he was making an outreach to their to the, quote, military-industrial complex's uh, worst enemy of enemies, and that is Nikita Khrushchev and the Soviet Union. And he's, and here you've got Kennedy making a diplomacy outreach to work together on the space program and several other things. Do you think that had something to do with the solidification of, of the assassination being called? Um, the American upper class always wants to be able to relate to the world through violence and force. Why is that? Why, why is that? Because we see it going on today. It's well, perpetual. Because their desires are at odds with the needs of most people in the world. Hmm. And what they want to do in the world is in conflict with the interest of most people and even most countries. And so force always has to be part of their repertoire. One of the the things that's been happening the last three decades is that they're frittering away many of our country's resources. And that's going to leave them, you know, it used to be, if you go back 30 years or 40 years or even 20 maybe, that the United States had quite a bit of prestige and influence in the world because of what we could do economically, either what we could give give people, sell people, assist people, aid people, we could do stuff. And we're just losing all that. And, you know, increasingly, uh, increasingly, you have to rely more and more on force. And I think George W. Bush was an expression of that. Do you think he was a puppet of the upper classes, a cognizant puppet? I should qualify that. Do you think he knew that he, his perhaps 
his strings his strings were being pulled. <laughs> but he but he was them. <laughs> you know? I mean that's yeah. what the upper class looks like in the White House. <laughs> let's go let's go right here right now because uh Donald Trump. Now I don't think there's a richer guy in the United States than Donald Trump. Is he part of that whole mechanism of the upper class? I've never researched him as an individual, but he's off. He appears to be off the reservation. If he's if he was on, he's now off, and uh, he he can't maybe even control his own mouth when he's out there on the campaign trail, because he's raising. You know, he's actually raising some of the same issues that that Bernie Sanders is. Yeah, like Bernie Sanders. Let's talk about Bernie Sanders. Is he off the reservation as well? To quote, oh you? yeah. Yeah, completely. yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm not a hundred percent in agreement with him, but I like him. I'll certainly support him. Uh, I, I guess I had been hoping uh, Elizabeth Warren might run, um, and then you know there are other there are a couple of other people of interest. Jim Webb is a very good person, I think, uh, but the media has acted like he doesn't even exist. So he's hard pressed to get off the ground, right? Because I don't even mention his name. How about our friend and yours, Hillary? I I don't want Hillary Clinton. Okay. I was uh, tired of Bill Clinton after about 18 months, and and uh, that, I, I should have been tired faster <laughs> because it was pretty obvious that almost everything progressive he had promised or supported, he dumped before he even got to the White House. He dumped it between December and February. Of the year he went into office. He went into office. Do you feel that we lost the country when Bobby died? Oh yeah, I do. Sure, and and that's because Robert and JFK were the last great representatives of where the New Deal was headed. Right. Do you think perhaps Jimmy Carter tried to get a little bit of that back? And he was thwarted? I would be open to the evidence there because he's always seemed in retirement a, a decent man. Uh, but the other side of that, of course, is he loaded up his administration with Council on Foreign Relations, Trilateral Commission, and people, and basically turned over a lot of the policy to them. And he, he really did a shameful job during the oil crisis. Okay. Right. Yeah. Well, no, I agree with you. And Many you know, people. go ahead. I was going to say he had asked Sorensen to be the head of the CIA because he really wanted to clear out the CIA, and then left Sorensen dangling and ended up with somebody else. You know, Colby, I think, came in at that point, and it was more the same. So uh, I, that's why I was wondering if he was thwarted again, if people started pulling strings, or you know, well, I guess there's that whole machine that's at work behind the scenes. I don't think the thing with the Kennedys, of course, is, is that partly they had their own money and they and then they had a background of being Irish Catholic and their father, even when he was so successful, was so socially snubbed. And, and so and then and then they, you know, they went to went to Ivy League schools. But according to their biographies, they didn't hang out with the Cabots and the Lodges and the, you know, those people. They hung out with a middle-class scholarship student. 
so there was this thing from the beginning of their lives where they were separate from that upper class, even though they were wealthy. But that, that made them especially capable in ways that most of us, of course, aren't. Um, but they are, yeah, but they are, I think, correctly seen as the embodiment of where the New Deal would should have gone and where it could go. And we need to get back to it. But, right? It doesn't have to be duplicating everything or anything like that. As you said earlier, you have new situations and circumstances. Certainly China's a new circumstance. This is a very unusual thing we're looking at there. And, um, you know, I don't, I, I don't know what to think about its leaders, really. Geopolitically, there's a hot spot for you right now in the world. I'm sorry, again? Geopolitically, where are the hot spots for you in the world right now? Well, inevitably, we come into conflict with China, and that happened a couple months ago in terms of they're suggesting this regional bank and development bank, which would service the Far East and the Pacific. And the reaction of the Obama administration was try to intimidate them into not doing it. As far as I know, that's still going on. So uh, there are obvious flashpoints developing around economic policy policy and um uh, you know god knows how we wander into an economic or a military confrontation but you can see with russia that could happen very easily especially in the ukraine well yeah. syria syria as well what a bloody mess that is without question yeah. oh yeah and uh, thanks partly to george w bush and cheney and the, and the rest of them because they destabilized an area when they had nothing to offer. Now, you know, if you want to destabilize an area, maybe it should be destabilized, but you don't do it when you're not capable of replacing what's there. You know, and they obviously weren't because they had no good, they had nothing good to offer. As Naomi Klein, did you read her article on uh, Baghdad, Year Zero? No, I didn't, actually. Harper's Map. Magazine, one of the finest things you'll read about the American invasion of Iraq. It's a it's a must read. <laughs> um, well, what she shows in there is that you know what they tried to do was to dismantle the society in about seventy two hours. Absolutely, absolutely crazy. <laughs> I mean, really, just crazy stuff. Folks, we're speaking with Dom Gibson tonight and uh, www.nightfrightshow.com. Click on his book covers, folks. This guy is a heavy thinker. The Canadian at the Canadian. It's because I was thinking Naomi uh, Klein is a Canadian. That's why. That's where that comes from, folks. The Kennedy assassination cover-up is one of his books. Battling Wall Street: The Kennedy Presidency is another book. Just click on his book covers. Don, let's go back to Kennedy and uh, the cover-up. How did the establishment cover up the assassination of the President of the United States? Was this pre-planned, or did they make it up as they went along? Some of it does look kind of haphazard, and that does remain, I think, somewhat of a mystery about this. Um, the elimination of Oswald looks a little bit sloppy. Mm. 
And if in the end you have to rely on some ex-low-level street goon from Chicago to clean up your assassination situation, I don't... I. <laughs> That's surprising, isn't it? You'd think that somebody better than Jack Ruby would be given that job. Now, some people think it was, what's his name, Tippett, the police officer who was supposed to have killed Oswald. I don't know. I don't think there's any you know, direct evidence for that. Maybe so. But that also, you pick some, like, private in the police force to, like, clean up your assassination. You know, all the, yeah, so it, it does look initially very sloppy. And, uh, but you have to, I think, remember that the American upper class, if they, if if they are anything, it's arrogant. Hmm. And I think their attitude was, we control the press, we'll control, you know, the Justice Department, uh, Katzenbach will do what he's told, Kennedy will stay home. And uh, we'll run the media, and we'll just, you know, we'll get control of this investigation. And it had to be taken out of Dallas, because as I showed in my book, there's plenty of evidence that Henry Wade and, and some of the others, Jesse Curry especially, they thought there was a conspiracy. That's right, they do. Yeah. <laughs> so that's a problem, right? <laughs> you can't shut down an investigation into a conspiracy if you got people who believe in one. <laughs> so they had to get that out of out of Dallas as fast as possible. You know? And then, of course, they had LBJ, and they must have figured that LBJ, you know, that he's experienced in doing one thing at least, and that's selling out. And so... <laughs> <laughs> so he'll he'll you know he'll be, be subject to pressure, and he turns out he was. But uh, I think it was a little harder than they expected. <laughs> Do you think LBJ was cognizant of the assassination? Many people think he was the one that um, that okayed the assassination. That he was the the mastermind. I, I see no evidence for that. I think that's preposterous. I have seen. I think that's that's mind messing to be pulled up. Like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you might as well give people bad acid or something. <laughs> what do you think the biggest consequence, biggest negative consequence of Kennedy's assassination was immediately after the assassination? And perhaps what is the biggest consequence of that assassination today? I think it was to to cut short the commitment that Kennedy had to stimulate, instigate, promote, reward, assist, enact uh, as much progress in general for people as was possible. And that included economic progress as a requirement for other forms of, of progress. I think that I think that's the key thing. And and it, it sort of, you know, it turned the world over to this globalization uh, effort, um, which has been a, a disaster. The global, to me, you know, the globalization is really the late 20th, 21st century replacement of colonialism. And free trade always was. It always was a substitute for, for colonialism. And... Uh, this particular brand, especially as it's formulated by the IMF, 
Um, it just smacks of uh, of British imperialism. That's you know. profound. That's a great. That's a great connection that you just made there. I never thought of it that way. Yeah, I think what the British did to the Irish and to India is is not that you know it's it's similar to what they do. If you know, what the IMF does, if it can get control of another country's government or economy. And today, what's the biggest consequence? The same thing of Kennedy's assassination. If we look at it today, all these years later. Well, it's the, I think I think the decline of the country probably wouldn't have happened because not only would he run, you know, he would have run the country five more years, but probably he would have been succeeded by like-minded people. But he would have been around too, That's to true. right to lead the criticism and to legitimize the criticism instantly. And uh, that was like Martin Luther King. He was a pain in the ass because he was a credibility guy, right? Anything he said had great credibility with large numbers of people. Of course, with a lot it didn't, but um, with, with many Americans it did. And he was an articulate guy, and, and he was just becoming really serious, I guess, about his economic uh, analysis. Well, it's, you know, I bring this up because a lot of people know about the, walk, uh, the March on Washington that was so successful for him. But he wanted to bring a poor people's campaign, and he was killed just before that to Washington, where he virtually wanted to shut down the city of Washington until there was more equity given to poor people. And that must have scared the hell out of the powers that be. Could you imagine somebody coming in with the power of a Martin Luther King and shutting down Washington? Yeah. See, he could have done it. He could have done it, and then suddenly, yeah. Yeah. I don't know, three or four days before the march, he's assassinated. Same folks, you think? Just speculation. You don't have to, you know, I won't quote Yeah, you. I don't, um, yeah, I suspect the same, I suspect the same networks of people. Um, so to Bobby too? Uh, yes. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, I see more the arc between Bobby and, and JFK. Mm. Yeah, the, the, the documentary and historical record is so much richer for JFK, mm. where the conflicts are clearly laid out in public view. Uh, with a lot of the other two, we have le much less of that. And there's less to work with in terms of building a case and and making a, making an argument for a certain kind of um, conclusion, but uh, there's no question in my mind that that RFK constituted a major defeat for the American upper class. And when he won in California, that's when he had to be killed. I'm not I'm not sure he would have gotten off the same side of the stage. I wonder. If he would have gotten off on the same side of the stage, if he had lost that primary, it's it's interesting. Um, maybe there was somebody waiting on the opposite side as well. We just don't know. possibly, but I think if he lost California, he was no longer the kind of threat that he had been. Yeah, and somebody would have taken his arm and guided him off the opposite side of the stage instead of that side towards the kitchen. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. yeah. Yeah, I've tried to get a couple people interested in trying to track that down. I spent a little time on it, but I, 
I can't resolve the question of who made those decisions, and there was apparently at least two people involved, but there could have been another. It's hard to know. It's hard to know. Military-industrial complex, you said you were a friend of Fletcher's. That was his key thesis. He believed that he was killed because of the military-industrial complex. Uh, the need for war, perpetual war. Certainly um, part of it. He and I had some disagreement about that, but we we more or less converged around the issue of the Council on Foreign Relations and Wall Street. And that is, he wasn't arguing that anybody wanted to build tractors in Vietnam, right? And, and military or industrial can, to some people, suggest such kind of stuff. And, and so I think in the, in the end of his life, and... I was cut off from him for quite a while because I guess he developed Alzheimer's, although I'm not sure. I'm not sure about that because I, I couldn't contact him. Yeah, much um, I, know he was very, hmm? I know he was very ill towards the end, extremely so. Yeah. 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 You know, I went to visit him numerous times in, in D.C., but at a certain point I was just, just not invited. No, um, no I understand. Where are we headed, Don? Where are we headed? Somewhere good? Nah. Not right now. Uh, we could be. I, I believe this country could be put on a right track again within three, three, five, seven, ten years. We could be moving in the right direction, clearly. So uh, we can always turn around. We can always change. Uh, countries are built from nothing, so we can always rebuild our countries. Does we the people still have the power? Um, not, you know, well... When perhaps, push comes to shove? Perhaps, perhaps we'll see when, with the way the media handles, like Bernie Sanders. and. Um, but as so far, it, it appears that most Americans don't really care what they say, which is good. <laughs> oh, damn, there's the music. I'm so sorry, Don. Uh, we've got to wrap up very quickly. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I completely lost track of time. So I'm Brent Holland from Night Fright. Thank you, Don Gibson, www.nightfrightshow.com. See you next time, buddy. Witness accounts for yours right now, nightfrightshow.com.